Good to be with y'all today. I am Giles Lindley. I am Charlie's seeing eye preacher for these last two weeks. And we hope Charlie gets better because I'm going to Florida with my grandchildren next weekend. So either he or somebody will be else will be preaching up here. But Charlie is doing much better. But he was not quite reading close up and working at a computer is not very much fun when you've had eye surgery. So it's an honor to be here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I, I'm a retired United Methodist preacher. I was pastor here for been retired five years. That's a scary thought. Been teaching at, uh, at the university. I've had Aaron, I've had Abby in my class, so they've had to endure me in both settings. But it is an honor always to be down here. I was, I was here the first time we walked into this building, and it was a, there was a hole right there. That, 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 and it was, it was a mess. But look, look what's become of it. And so proud of this service and so honored to be a part of it. Going to preach from... Uh, from Acts today. First chapter, going to pick up with uh, about verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood by, by them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. By tradition, this is the ascension. And by tradition, the, the day of the ascension falls 40 days after Easter, which this year was this past Thursday. But because Easter tends to jump around and because the ascension usually lands on a weekday, it, it often gets lost in our preaching between Mother's Day and Memorial Day and Graduation Day, which they're having up, up the street, or the SEC baseball tournament. There are all sorts of things going on that keep us from preaching about it. So it doesn't pop up quite as often as the story warrants. But this is the story of Jesus after the resurrection being taken up from the disciples and going back to heaven. And there's some important parts for it. You know, as it's told here in the first chapter of Acts, it's been 40 days and the disciples are still not quite sure what's going on. They're not sure what's going to happen next. They're just glad he's there. I mean, after all they had been through with Holy Week and with the, with the cross and with the resurrection, they're just, they're just happy to have him. They're not really asking, what do we have to do now? What do we have to do next? They are just kind of, kind of basking in the glow of it. Right here, right now is good enough. But then Jesus tells them they need to wait into Jerusalem because something's going to happen. Power is going to come upon them as we know this is the story of the Pentecost. They still don't know what it's for, but they, 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 he said to wait. So they're, they're trying to figure out, okay, why are we waiting? What are we waiting for? What is going to happen? And so they get the idea that maybe this is part of a plan. So they ask him, say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, despite all that they've seen and all they've heard, 
they still have this picture in their mind that Jesus is going to make Israel a great nation once again, a great earthly kingdom once again. They, they, they're not dismissing any of Jesus' spiritual powers or the, the, that this is going to be a religious spiritual thing. But like most Jewish people of that day, they all thought it tied together with Jesus coming to save the world to be the Messiah was. Israel will be a great nation. Jesus will be a spiritual king and an earthly king. And we're going to kick out the Romans. And we are going to be a great nation once again. As I said, it's not just the disciples. That's what most people expected of the Messiah in those days. So they thought that's what, what Jesus would do. Jesus really doesn't answer the question about the nature of his kingdom. But he reminds them that it is something off in the future. And, and then he reminds us something that he said before. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Once again, no one knows. But then he comes back and tells them about this power that you're going to receive. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to use that power to be my witnesses. Here in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, the, the, the neighboring areas, and then to all the rest of the world. But before they could ask, okay, well, what does that mean? He just disappears or is carried up, I guess is a better way of putting it. He rises up, he ascends, that's why we call it the ascension. He ascends to heaven. He is gone. And I love the next little detail of the story. After he's gone out of sight, the disciples are just standing there, staring up, like we do, like we're watching a balloon or something. And he is gone. He is, he is out of sight. And they are still just standing there, not knowing what to do next. And the story tells us that uh, two men in white, almost certainly angels, come stand with him. And they basically say, why are you standing around staring in the air? This Jesus, whom you saw leave, will come back in the same way that you saw him. Basically, they're saying, stop, stop looking. You'll see it when it comes. But you've got things to do now. The task of the original disciples was to be witnesses. Witnesses to all that Jesus had said and done. Remember, none of this has been written down yet. They're the ones who've heard the Sermon on the Mount. They're the ones who've heard the parables. They need to be telling them to share Jesus' teachings. But in particular, they're to be witnesses to the fact of the resurrection, that they saw Jesus after the cross, after his death, that they know that their Jesus lives. That's very important. In a few verses in Acts, they're going to choose somebody to take Judas' place to fill out the 12, uh, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And one of the requirements was, well, basically it says, you know, that they, he must be someone who's been with us from the beginning, but also someone who has seen the resurrection. Peter says, this person must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So that's what they went and did. First there in Jerusalem, then they spread out Judea, Samaria, and then over time that message went out throughout all the world. We're 2,000 some odd years later. It is still our job to be witnesses. 
Now, we weren't there. We didn't see. But it is our job as Christians, as followers, to witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is alive, that Jesus Christ has touched our lives, that his power, that his spirit have been let loose in our world and in our lives, and in all that we say and all that we do and all that we love and all that we are, to be witnesses to this world of these things. We can't say we've seen the Lord in the same way we, they did, but we've seen Jesus' church. We've seen Jesus at work. We have felt his power in our lives. And so our task is to continue to be witnesses as we go out into this world. Now, there's an interesting line there. It says, be witnesses until he comes again. And that's a significant part of the story. Uh, if you read the New Testament, you realize just how important it was. They believed that Jesus was coming back soon. In fact, they were still sitting there watching, saying, you coming back now? They believed Jesus was coming back soon, as in any day now. As in, you know, we don't need to make long-term plans. They believed Jesus was coming back soon. I was teaching uh, last Sunday, I was teaching Acts in, in a Sunday school class, and I had to remind them that the entire New Testament was written by people who thought that Jesus Christ was going to return in their lifetime. That, that's just what they believed. That's what, that's what everybody thought back then. And even, even as it got to where they realized it wasn't really going to happen, that day they still hung on to the idea, well, it's going to happen soon. But... We still don't know. But people still want it to happen quickly. But for the disciples back then, it was, you know, the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go in heaven. And they took this you very, very personally. Everybody tends to think that Jesus is coming soon. Sooner or later, someone's going to be right, but everybody seems to think that Jesus is coming soon. Reading this story makes me think back to a time when I was 16 years old. Uh, I was growing up in Jackson and an evangelist came to Jackson and was preaching on the revelation. And it was a pretty big deal. It was at the Coliseum. The crowds were in the thousands. We all went down there. I don't remember his name, but I remember his message. The rapture is coming soon and things are bad, but they're going to get worse. And so you do not want to be left behind. And this was before the left behind books. But things kind of go in cycles with this expectation of how soon Jesus come back. And this in the early mid-70s, mid it was kind of one of those peaks of the cycles. Hal Lindsey had written this book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and everybody was just, just getting into it. Every Christian rock band worth their guitars was, was singing, life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. That was just, that was just the mood that was going on. Well, this guy came in the middle of that and then, as I said, drew a lot of people. A lot, a lot of high school kids. For, I think everybody I knew went. And we, there were a lot of high school kids in Jackson. And he preached long and hard. And if we really listened to him, we would have dropped out of high school. 
Because Jesus was coming back soon and the rapture was happening soon and we didn't need to worry about graduation. We had other things we needed to be worried about. He was what you call a pre-trib dispensationalist. I'm not going to get into all those different categories. But his constant theme was things are bad. They are going to get worse. But Jesus is going to come take the good people out of it before it gets worse. And you better not get left behind. As I said, this is before the left behind books. But that's what happened. That's what they were talking about. It was, it was kind of a new thing, but before then, you know, preachers would try to scare us by telling us we were going to hell. And for whatever reason, during that period of time, which reminds me how old I am, but that's okay. Uh, they'd given up telling us we weren't afraid of hell, obviously, not enough for the preachers. So the way to scare us was to tell us that the world was going to hell and we were going to be left behind. That was the scary message that they brought and this guy, of course, tied it into everything and all the world, what was going on in the political system. And he was convinced that Gog was the USSR and Magog was China. And they were going to meet and attack Israel and have a great battle on the plains of Megiddo, which was Armageddon as from the Bible. And he had it all in great detail. And of course, he was wrong, at least from the perspective of what has happened in the last 50 years. USSR doesn't even exist anymore. And now everybody knows that, that Gog is Turkey and Magog is Iran, or at least you can find someone on the internet who will tell you that. I actually found a bunch of different definitions. I uh, found somebody who thought that the modern state of Israel is now Gog. And anyway, it gets complicated. Generally you find people will guess, they'll be wrong, they'll guess something else. But that was back in the early 70s. Even then, I was, you would say, skeptical. I had no trouble believing that Jesus was going to come back one day. But I had a great suspicion about anybody who claimed to know when it was going to happen. I, I knew that the Bible said more than once, no one knows. I knew that all the symbolism in Revelation or any of number of prophets, they were symbols and by symbols they could mean it could be taken any number of ways. And I also knew, even by then, that throughout history, people had tried to say, oh, I know the date. I have, they have set the date. They know when it's going to happen. And that's when it is. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Now, one day, I always say, one day somebody's going to be right. But it's going to be because they guessed. It doesn't mean because they have any great spiritual knowledge. It'll be coincidence. I, I did some research back when I was a preacher, and I came up with... 48 different dates that people had set for the second coming. As you might have guessed, they have all passed by now. They have all happened. They, they do kind of collect around round numbers, around 100 A.D., 500 A.D., 1,000 A.D., 2,000 A.D. They, 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 they like the round numbers, but it, it just happens. It, what was interesting as I put this list together was I found some of the people who were wrong didn't slink back into their cave and disappear, they recalculated and they would have to come up with another date because we have better understanding of what exactly is going on. But they were wrong once again. I didn't know all this back then, but I did know that a lot of people had been wrong. And I, I did over the years start collecting my own set of predictions. I, I have a book, I, I was trying to find it, but I packed up my stuff five years ago. One of my friends, I used to keep it on my desk in my office. It was 88 reasons 
why Christ will return by 1988. Well, in case you weren't there, some of y'all were not alive in 1988. 1988 passed and it did not happen. I have a, a, a card that actually invites me to the rapture on a date in 2012. Well, my, I, I guess I didn't RSV correctly, but it, it was just, just whatever happened. I make fun of it a little bit, and they deserve it. Throughout the history of Christianity, Christians have had a hard time figuring out what to do with all this talk of end time and all this talk, particularly as regards the revelation. I mean, Jesus is clear. No one knows. It'll happen when it happens. Be ready. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But people get reading in the, in the back of the book, in the back of the book, and they just figure, oh, I, I understand this, and I can interpret that. But that hadn't always been the case, you know. The revelation only got into the New Testament after a good bit of discussion. When they, they finally, the council that sat down and decided, there were some people who said, no, let's leave this out. No, let's leave it in. Martin Luther would have hated it. If he had gotten his way, it would not be in there. John Calvin, great Presbyterian reform scholar, he wrote a detailed doctrinal commentary on every book of the Bible except the Revelation. Yeah, I must be predestined to be a Methodist, which is funny in and of itself. But uh, it's interesting how many times I read John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church, and find something that that he wrote 300 years ago that I still agree with. And this is from his notes on the New Testament about the Revelation. It's scarce possible for any that either love God or fear God not to fear their hearts extremely affected by seriously reading either the beginning or the latter part of the Revelation. These it is evident we cannot consider too much. But the intermediate parts, those middle chapters, I did not study at all for many years as utterly despairing of understanding them after the fruitless attempts of so many wise and good men. John Wesley was a very practical theologian and he wanted to understand the Bible. But he knew some of those trying to figure out, oh, okay, what is Gog and Magog? It didn't help him be a Christian here and now. He knew Jesus would come again. He believed Jesus would come again. He preached that Jesus would come again. But he knew until Jesus comes, we're supposed to love our neighbor. We're supposed to feed the hungry. We're supposed to visit the prisons. We're supposed to continue to witness to the power of the gospel. And that's, that's what he did. Now, it's interesting that, that it is kind of fun, that he preached a sermon called Prepare to Meet Thy God. And he found himself preaching in the middle of one of those times when all of a sudden everyone just kind of gotten riled up that the end of the world was coming. Something had happened in England and people said, oh, these are the signs. The rapture is here. The end has come. Judgment day is upon us. And John Wesley preached this sermon on prepare to meet that God, our God. And the, the per sermon premise was basically, of course you should prepare to meet your God. But you should be prepared every day. And so... Jesus probably isn't going to come tonight. So you've got to figure out, how am I going to live tomorrow? And of course, John Wesley, being John Wesley, would say, yeah. You go to tomorrow and you love your neighbor. You go to tomorrow and find who's hurting, who's sick, who's hungry, and do something about it. You go to tomorrow and you sing and you praise and you worship. You go to tomorrow and you witness. 
and you will be prepared to meet your God. He even wrote this after he preached the sermon. He wrote this in his, uh, in his journal. And he's never funny. And he's actually funny here. Because notwithstanding all I could say, many were afraid to go to bed. And some wandered about in the fields being persuaded that if the world did not end, at least London would be swallowed up by an earthquake. I went to bed at my usual time and was fast asleep by 10 o'clock. Good theology will help you sleep better at night. John Wesley subscribed to one of my favorite statements, which is, yes, Jesus is coming, but I ain't waiting up nights. That's the way it is. But good theology will help us sleep better. But it doesn't mean we don't have stuff to do. I was fortunate to figure out a long time ago when I was 16, 17. Same thing Jesus that Paul, that John Wesley taught. Doesn't matter whether Jesus comes back tomorrow or a thousand or a million tomorrows. He's coming back. But until he does, you know what you've got to do. You know what your instructions are. You know what to do if you wake up tomorrow morning. We are supposed to spend each day preparing to meet our God by following, by serving, by worshiping, by witnessing. That's how we'll be faithful. That's how we'll be ready. And that's what we should do until He comes again. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son and we thank you for all he's given us and taught us. We look forward to his coming, but we also look forward to the days that you've given us here and the work that you've given us and the chance to be your church, to be your people, to be his followers, to be his witnesses to our day and time. Fill us with your Spirit that we may go forward in hope, that we may go forward in faith, and we may go forward in love. Amen. Let's stand together.